Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Andrew Holacek. Andrew has completed the traditional three-year Buddhist meditation retreat and offers seminars internationally on meditation, dream yoga, and the art of dying. He is the author of Preparing to Die, Practical Advice and Spiritual Wisdom from the Tibetan Buddhist Tradition, Meditation in the Eye Generation, How to Meditate in a World of Speed and Stress, The Power and the Pain, Transforming Spiritual Hardship into Joy, the audio learning course Dream Yoga, The Tibetan Path of Awakening Through Lucid Dreaming, and his latest book, Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. Dr. Holacek is a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and has authored scientific papers. His work has appeared in Parabola, Lion's Roar, Tricycle, Utne Reader, is that how you pronounce it? Utne Reader, yeah. Utney Reader, Buddha Dharma Magazine, Light of Consciousness, and many other periodicals. Andrew holds degrees in classical music, biology, and a doctorate in dental surgery, which came as a surprise <laughs> to me, that last bit, uh, Andrew. So how are you? <laughs> Thanks for having me here, Jacob. So Andrew, tell me a little bit about how you got from dental surgery to dreams. Yeah, it's almost the other way around, actually. You know, I, I, I uh, became more interested in the nature of reality um, through meditation, through dreams, and realized that I had several choices very early on um, going into the academy and uh, teaching and that sort of thing, which had, uh, you know, its own promises and perils. Um, and then really making the decision, um, did I want that kind of obligation or did I want the freedom? And so the, the kind of clinical aspect of my life was really retrofitted in, in terms of like, hey, you know, can I do something that's quite practical, that provides a financial infrastructure for what I really want to do? But I have to say parenthetically, Jacob, that <clears throat> that, that career has, has served a wonderful um, set of purposes, one being that we founded a foundation um, years ago called Global Dental Relief, and now we work in a number of countries throughout the world providing um, free oral health care to impoverished children. And it's I, I toss that into the mix because the, the stuff I work with can be disembodied, can be cerebral, heady. I mean, even the meditation thing can be disembodied if it's not related to properly. And so this is a, a certain form of translational research, so to speak, where it puts me in, in the trenches, it keeps me honest and um, puts my life in proper perspective. So it's it's been a, a wonderful kind of um, corollary uh, collateral benefit to pursuing that career, and, and also in my work in Asia, I've worked a lot in Nepal, India, Tibet. It's given me the tremendous opportunity to study with some of the world's greatest meditation masters, and so that's the selfish part of it for me. But uh, yeah, so wow. that's kind of how it came together. So this is like a whole other um, world of your life, because I mean, when I, as I've been looking at the work that you're doing, I mean, it seems like your work on on lucid dreaming and, and dream research and dream yoga really is quite substantial. And yet you also have this other quite substantial understanding. So, you know, one of the, at the bio, you talked about um, being on one of these three-year Buddhist meditation retreats, which, you know, for anybody listening, um, sounds like a very intense experience. So I'd love to hear a little bit about um, your experience in that and maybe how that's uh, begun or did inform the work that you're doing today, um, did you sort of, you know, have some realizations that sort of began to open you up to this work on dreaming, or how did that, how did that 
how is that connection? Um, tell us about that connection. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it's, it's, it's without question the most seminal experience of my life. Um, I went into it for a number of reasons. One was I had been studying very intensively with a number of teachers, in particular my main teacher, Kimpo Sultrim Gyamso Rinpoche, um, really an awakened one. We can talk a little bit about that kind of ultimate lucidity in this relationship to lucid dreaming. And, and uh, you know, I've been studying, 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 and I realized, um, and again, somewhat thematically related to your embodied trajectory, that uh, we have a kind of a, a pedagogical approach in the tradition that I, you know, the Kool-Aid that I drink, which is the Tibetan Buddhist kind of approach, a really interesting pedagogical approach of hearing, contemplating, meditating, or I use the analogy of ingest, digest, metabolize. And um, I was ingesting a lot, but I wanted to metabolize and digest so that these teachings literally um, became me, you know, transforming cerebral data, um, cerebral data into somatic fiber. And so I went into retreat to take the teachings from my head and bring them into my body and then into my life. And it, it was beyond profound for me. Um, it was also beyond difficult. Is why I wrote my first book, The Power of the Pain, because it really was, it was like a detox. It was like being in detox from Western so-called civilization. It was extremely difficult for me, um, but proportionately revelatory too. I, I, I learned so much about myself and the nature of mind and reality. And it, during the course of that experience, um, the great gift of the Tibetan approach is just the extraordinary offering of skillful means, upaya in, in Sanskrit, all these different meditations, you know, meditations for sleeping, dreaming, dying, sex, I mean, you name it, they have a meditation. And so in that retreat, Jacob, um, especially the last year when I was studying what's called the six yogas of Naropa, I had the extraordinarily precious opportunity to engage in lucid dreaming, <clears throat> dream yoga, sleep yoga, and then kind of the daytime correlate practice, illusory form. And that was a real game changer for me because um, several things happened. One was that my dreams became increasingly more real. Um, in a very real way, I was in a certain sense, quote unquote, reifying my dream state. And uh, by uh, kind of implication, what was happening was I was de-reifying the waking reality. And I was therefore able to catch glimpses of what the great wisdom traditions refer to sometimes as the great equanimity, um, or in tantric language, one taste, the, the kind of the ultimate equanimous nature of mind through all states of consciousness, which is what I would argue is what it means to be awake, to maintain a kind of constant consciousness, a constant lucidity, kind of a 24-7 awareness through all states of consciousness. And, and that really, Jacob, is what inspired me when I came out to just share my passion for what I had been so fortunate to discover. And, and so I look at my work now um, somewhat as a cultural translator, where these great wisdom, skillful means, this kind of inner technology, which has been around for thousands of years, um, it just needs to be translated into Western cultural terms, which really, I would argue, principally scientific and psychological, sciences of mind and, and reality. And so and in a certain sense, that's my charter now, is to decode the kind of twilight language of these esoteric teachings, to bring them into the, to the cultural milieu of the Western world, and to show people that we have, um, you know, this information age, access to tremendous resources that can really transform our lives. Yeah, 
Wow. So, you know, just to ask you a follow-up question to the, the, the retreat, just kind of a practical question. Did you have, in the context of the retreat, was it open for your um, sort of experimenting with various practices? Did you have like a core meditation practice that you were meant to do every day and then you were able to kind of explore these other supplemental practices that sort of led you in the direction of the dream work? Was that sort of the nature? Great question. Yeah, great question. The, the general curricula of, of the program, it's really like going to a meditation university yeah. where you are given this extraordinarily sophisticated and very well thought out um, protocol, this progression of practices that even, you know, retrospectively, I've been out over 20 years. I'm just absolutely stunned. I mean, genius would be a pejorative in terms of the absolute brilliance of the trajectory of these practices. And so during the course of the retreat itself, these practices came so quickly. Um, there was, I literally I engaged in 50, 60 different types of meditations, all designed to work with mind and all its manifestations. And so I, I didn't have a great deal of luxury during the retreat itself to explore all the things I've done since then, because I really, it's like when you're in graduate school or in, in, in post, you know, postgraduate school, you don't really have a lot of time. Um, I was trying to understand what I was doing, trying to, you know, I, I asked myself, because there were so many meditations, I, I took it upon myself before I did every, every single practice, I, I would ask myself, you know, what does it mean to accomplish this practice? What does it mean to accomplish dream yoga? What does it mean to accomplish illusory form or the inner heat yogas or you name it? And so I was just constantly in every free moment I had, which wasn't much because we were practicing and 16 hours a day and, and sleeping upright in a meditation box, which people always get very interested in. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's very conducive to the lucid practices, by oh, the way. Yeah, I bet. According to the inner yogic system, you know, we work with these subtle energies and the like. And so basically, I, I was on all 24-7 with these studies and these practices. And then when I came out of Retreat Jacob is when I had the luxury to look back and really, somewhat like going to to, to um, college. Okay, it's like, what do I want to now specialize in? You know, what do I really want? What is my resonance? What is my path? And for various reasons, what I have now started to call the nocturnal meditations, and we can talk about what actually com comprises that kind of curricula. That's become my recent, um, uh, not recent. I mean, really, for the last twenty years, that's been my path is is exploring these more subtle dimensions of mind that are actually revealed in sleeping, dreaming, and, and allegedly even in the, in the dying um, spaces. So um, that's kind of what I've been doing since I've come out of retreat, and some of my writing and teaching has been based on that. Well, it's fascinating, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. And uh, because as I said, you know, before we just started the official interview, um, I had mentioned that I really appreciated how um, rigorous your work is, because I think a lot of the dream yoga and sort of lucid dreaming sort of stuff out there tends to be a bit fluffy. And so, and as a result of that, the unfortunate thing is that less people take it seriously, but what you're doing is really articulating it in a very clear way. And you're working with scientists and, and you yourself have a sort of scientific disposition and, and so, and training. And so it's, uh, it's refreshing to kind of look at your work and, and see something that really grounds it um, in a really um, palpable way. So I want to ask a very basic question for those who are listening and that's, um, you know, really, what are dreams from the perspective of Eastern tradition? Uh, a lot of people today think, 
and speak of dreams as sort of a meaningless residual residue from the day's activities, um, or they think it's you know the complete opposite of that, and and it and it has too much meaning, and perhaps <laughs> uh, they read too much into their dreams. So, what do the Eastern traditions say about the function um, of dreams and and really what they are? Yeah, yeah, that's a huge question. It's it's really this is why I'm a fan of of integral theory and integral thinking is that dreams like consciousness itself exists along a spectrum. Um, and here I'm going to be a spokesman, not just for the Eastern view, but with your permission, maybe expand on the, to a broader embrace of the dreaming mind altogether. And this is really perhaps one of the things, again, in this, in this kind of um, notion of cultural translator is maybe perhaps something that I bring um, is this kind of double belt approach of joining the ancient wisdom of the uh, East to the modern knowledge of the West. And so with that said, um, and then I will kind of talk a little bit more specifically, if you like, about the so-called Eastern approaches to dream. But dreams exist along the spectrum from really fundamental neurological noise, just, you know, just discharge uh, meaningless, so-called meaningless spaces. But even those, parenthetically, can be used for purposes of lucidity, practices like uh, lucid dreaming and dream yoga. So any dream can be used for lucid dreaming and dream yoga. But they, they exist from that kind of neurological noise all the way to these extraordinarily powerful revelatory dreams, sometimes called dreams of clear light or clear light dreams that are that are hyper lucid, that are actually more real. This is what, again, one of the game changing experiences that I had, especially in retreat where, I, you know, and I'm not special, anybody who does these practices has these experiences, but you are trained to evoke uh, qualities of um, phenomenological experience where the dream literally is more real than this. And those are the game changers, Jacob, because when you wake up from a hyper-lucid dream that lasts, for instance, more than an hour, I would argue it's it's not too dissimilar from near-death experiences. I've never had one, but I argue that near-death experiences are so transformative because you're dealing with tectonic levels of mind and reality, and you don't need to have an NDE over and over to be changed by them. And in the same way, these hyperlucid clear light dreams uh, are so foundational, they're so transformative that when you wake up from those, it changes the way you relate to this entire reality. And so with that said, my understanding of the so-called Eastern approach to dream, and this is what I'm arguing uh, at some length of the book that is coming out this year, Dreams of Light, uh, the Profound Daytime Practice of Lucid Dreaming, is that fundamentally dream is a code word for manifestation of mind. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, we can use what um, the traditions refer to as the example dream or the double delusion of the nighttime dream as a way to study the primary delusion the real dream of so-called waking reality until we get to this conclusion that I alluded to earlier where we fundamentally understand the dreamlike nature of all reality. And so this, this has profound implications and applications. I mean, here's just one. In, in the schema of the nocturnal meditations, the, the, the most advanced practice is what's called bardo yoga. Bardo, as you know, is a Tibetan word, refers to you know, transitional processes, literally, etymologically, the gap, and it refers to archetypally, if you believe in this sort of thing, um, the gap between lives. Um, and so with Bardo Yoga tenets, 
and its kind of relationship to dream yoga and sleep yoga, you can answer this perennial question of where do you go or what happens after you die? Well, with this kind of approach to mind and reality, you simply transition from one dream to the next. And so, as Edgar Allan Poe and many other philosophers and mystics throughout the ages have said, we are living in just this kind of nested hierarchy of recursive dreams. It's just dream within dream within dream. And waking up to this reality from the nighttime dream is actually, in the spiritual traditions, referred to as a false awakening. If you wake up and take the contents of this, this reality to be dualistic, that's what it means to be asleep in the spiritual sense. And so, you know, kind of a long-winded answer to a very deep question, what is dream? I mean, I fundamentally um, take refuge in the notion that dream is manifestation of mind. And right now, therefore, we are engaged in a dream. Um, and so what that really means, the implications, the applications, why is this important? Why should I care? We can go in this direction if you want, because this, of course, is what the Buddha, the awakened one, discovered. You know, he woke up to the illusory dreamlike nature of this reality and found the liberation and the freedom inherent in that discovery. So lots to say about that. Yeah, so let me ask, let me ask a follow-up perhaps um, uh, uh, equally as, as uh, large a question, which is, you know, if we are to, and I love these concepts, this is something that I wanted to bring up anyway, so I'm glad you did, of the double delusion of the nighttime dream as using that to wake up to the illusory nature of the primary delusion or so-called waking reality um, so if there is a kind of primary delusion um, or a dreamlike nature to what we associate with waking reality, then what is um, a non-dreaming state? And I think that the, the yeah. reason why I want to ask this question is because a lot of people, I think, associate a, a non-dreaming state with something totally other than what we're experiencing, and it somehow transcends the world as we know it. And so it can kind of lead a little bit to this sort of escapist sense, um, uh, you know, escapist kind of sensibility about um, our daily experience and, and what we're actually going uh, or aiming toward in our spiritual practice. So is, a, you know, is a, is, is a non-dreaming state something totally other than what we experience on a daily basis, or does it include what we experience on a daily basis with a sort of transmuted perception? Yeah, that's a that's a terrific question, um, and it's it's really the heart of the whole thing, and it's exactly the the topic that's central to the book I just released, which is fundamentally what this notion of waking up entails. And and, and again, parenthetically, I do have to toss in you you absolutely nailed the um, several of the massive near enemies of things like um, illusory uh, illusory form dream yoga sleep yoga and the like, which is uh, a nihilistic or escapist approach where um, it's very easy when you work with this material, when you when one professes the dreamlike nature of reality, uh, a consequence of, uh, especially the Western word to dream is dismissive, you know, saying this is a dream is in fact a pejorative statement. So it's very easy to slide into all these subtle spiritual traps that become exactly what you say, kind of cosmologically dualistic, where we just lose contact with reality. This is the absolute opposite of that. You're actually making contact with reality. So the, the path is therefore more perceptual than ontological. In other words, it's really just a shift in perspective. 
And that is, in fact, why we can use the example dream, the double delusion, to wake up, to gain an intimation of what it means to wake up to this. Because, and again, here, here's one way to really play with it. You know, when you're stuck in a normal, non-lucid dream, and this will, this will backpedal into your um, question about what does it mean to have a non-dreaming experience, let's use a double delusion as an example. So you're stuck in your regular non-lucid dream. What makes that dream non-lucid is, is a completely kind of um, inappropriate relationship to that display. In other words, you fall prey to the display of the mind and you reify it. You take what's happening to be real. That's what it means to be stuck in a non-lucid dream. You don't know that you're dreaming when you're dreaming. That's non-lucidity. And so something through the practice of lucid dreaming and dream yoga and the whole battery of techniques obviously is designed to wake you up within the dream, something will clue you into the fact that you're dreaming. And then all of a sudden, it's the same display. The, the, the display is still there. That hasn't changed. Your relationship, your perspective, your perception of the display has changed. And so here's a, here's a beautiful summary statement from the great meditation master, uh, Master Tulku Ujin Rinpoche, when he said, samsara, and I think your listeners probably know what samsara is, the, the conditioned display of, of framing the phenomenal world as we know it. Samsara is mind turned out, lost in its projection. Nirvana is mind turned in, recognizing its true nature. And so the dream is an archetypal demonstration of that, mind lost in its projection, lost in the display. That's the definition of non-lucidity, and we suffer in direct proportion to that. Nightmares really have their fundamental power because we unwittingly impute the display of mind with an ontological status it does not inherently have. And this is the great kicker. I mean, you know, we're, we're not victims of nightmarish situations, we're victims of nightmarish relationships to situations. And so let's take that exact same phenomenology, bring it back to the primary delusion and say, okay, what does it mean to be asleep here? Well, and again, this backpedals in the question. What it means to be asleep here is the same type of phenomenological process. You're lost in this particular display, taking the contents of this to be real taking the world to be solid, lasting, and independent, i.e. dualistic. If you see the world this way, and we all do, let's be honest, that's a dream sign from the spiritual perspective. That's what it means to be asleep. And so if you want to know if you're spiritually asleep, there's your central criteria. And in that regard, we are all snoring. And so then <laughs> what happens is, you know, something will clue us into the fact. We will, we will wake up to a dimension of mind and reality that is even more stable than this. So this is an interjection, Jacob, with your permission, that is worth tossing into the mix. The reason we designate the nighttime dream as a dream is not because of some inherent quality in the dream escape. We do so in contradistinction meaning stability of this reality. And it is from this perspective that we look upon the nighttime dream and give it this quality saying, oh yeah, that's just a dream. The only reason we haven't woken up to this as a dream yet is we haven't found a dimension of mind that is even more stable than this. And so this is where the great meditative traditions come into play because they allow you, in fact, to discover states of mind 
um, revealed principally through sleep yoga, by the way, yoga nidra, um, that are so foundationally stable, so irrevocably real, that it is from that stance that you can legitimately say, this is a dream. Um, and so what it means, therefore, to say we're in non-dreaming is, in fact, uh, easy to say in a certain sense, not so terribly easy to, to actually experience, is to see the world in a non-dualistic way, what is sometimes referred to by scholars as a kind of tantric epistemology, where you see yourself completely inseparable from the phenomenal world. And if you'd like, um, I'll get come up for air, we can talk about this a little bit, I can actually give you and your listeners a very powerful brief contemplation where this otherwise abstract approach can, is, can be something that you can play with and work with. Because there is a way through an, a very uh, simply articulated contemplation that you can gain a sense of what this actually means. But just like your other question, my friend, this is a big one. And so maybe that's uh, something we can riff on. Yeah, I definitely want, uh, pl want to get to a point where, we, uh, where I ask you for some practical um, uh, tools to actually engage you know, this process of, of lucid dreaming. Um, but I want to ask a, a question first about, because I think we've been talking a lot about lucid dreaming, and, and maybe we can offer some, just, just in case some, some people who are listening are not totally familiar, they've heard about it, but they're not totally sure. So lucid dreaming is, in a sense, when you realize in the context of dreaming that you are dreaming, and it sort of liberates you to have all of these sort of powers within the dream that you didn't have before. Um, so maybe you want to say a little bit more about what lucid dreaming is, but then my question to that, a uh, follow-up question to that then is, you know, is is the experience of waking up in the primary delusion or what we associate with waking life analogous to that in the sense that once I discover myself as dreaming in, you know, waking life, I also am liberated into these sort of powers that I perhaps didn't have before. Is it is it analogous in that way? Yes, very much so. Um, and, and, and several things here. It, it, this is, in fact, why the Buddha, uh, I think rightly so, can be called the ultimate lucid dreamer, because that's what he woke up to. And, and I think this is very worth throwing into the mix. You know, what did the Buddha wake up from? And what did he wake up to? He woke up from the nightmare of reification. He woke up from seeing this world as solid, lasting, and independent. Again, precisely what constitutes non-lucid dreams and a non-lucid life. What he woke up to is what I was intimating earlier. He woke up to an illusory, dreamlike, or in Buddhist jargon, uh, an empty um, reality. In other words, a reality that's empty of inherent existence. And, and so we can most certainly use the, the nighttime dream as a profound um, kind of glimpse of what it would mean to wake up in this reality. And so the types of powers that we can um, glean from this awakening, Jacob, are twofold. One, according to the great wisdom traditions, as I've come to understand them, is that, yes, in fact, when you completely wake up to the nature of this reality, you develop what's called relative city. You've probably heard this term. City is, uh, refers to kind of psychic power, and it comes in two forms. Uh, relative city is the classic clairvoyance, clairaudience, the ability to manipulate the so-called real world. And if, in fact, the world is illusory and dreamlike, then 
that really creates those types of avenues, you know, the, the opportunity to become a kind of sorcerer. These types of relative cities are important, but they're also potentially very powerful traps because they can be used for, you know, self-aggrandizement and egoic inflation, which, by the way, which is why um, sensitive dreamers and thinkers like Carl Jung, who knew all about lucid dreaming, did not endorse it or endorsed it very um, carefully because he realized the potential for ego to just go wild in the dream state. But the more important type of city um, is absolute relative city. The jingle I come up with, Jacob, is relative city is when you have power over the world. It has its kind of provisional validity. But much more important is absolute city, which is when the world no longer has power over you. Um, then you can still, again, the display is still there. The phenomenal display is still there. But it no longer can affect you the way it did before because you have developed this kind of X-ray vision that allows you to see through the previously reified nature of that reality. And so, therefore, um, this is one of the kind of the inner renderings of the word enlightenment. You know, the world appears lighter, freer, and in the deepest sense, we can talk about the nature of uh, reality as actually literally being made of light and how this relates to the light of mind, how this relates to knowing in epistemology altogether. But so, so I guess the take home here is that indeed these practices bring about this kind of power in both relative and absolute senses. And the most important one is absolute city, where the, the display of your mind is still there, but no longer has the power to sway you. The phenomenal world still there, no longer has the power to move you unless you elect to be moved by that display. And of course, on one level, you do want to be moved by it because that's the basis of compassion. It's not like you become this kind of aseptic, sterile being. Um, you actually see things and perceive things more, but they hurt you less because you, know, you don't give them a place to land, so to speak. So the, I think the absolute city, the absolute power is really what's important with these practices. Wow, yeah, Andrew, your explanations of these things are just fantastic. I, it's it's really incredible. Um, I feel like very um, nuanced sort of uh, things that we talk about a lot on the podcast in various guises, but just um, this lens through dreaming is is really powerful. I think people are going to get a lot out of this. So one of the, th we're talking obviously a lot about um, the spiritual kind of benefit of lucid, uh, of lucid dreaming and, and leveraging dreams in our contemplative practice. But obviously, you've also done some work on the therapeutic benefits, um, which, of course, are not separate necessarily. Um, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that for those that are maybe like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm not necessarily looking for the non-dual state right now. I just don't want to be so unhappy. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, what are some yeah. of the therapeutic benefits of this? Uh, yeah. yeah, again, another great one. You know, that just like with, with the spectrum of dreams itself, the, the spectrum of benefits with these nocturnal practices is, is really off the charts. Um, and, and so when one, and this is a really important interjection, Jacob, because very often when people hear about these nocturnal practices, you know, one of the first things is like, oh man, geez, you know, my life is so busy, everything's so full, like why, why bother, right? <laughs> my, my sleep and dream were so precious to me. Um, why should I muck that up with these practices? Well, when you understand the vast um, spectrum of benefits here, it, it's almost too good to be true. Um, uh, psychological benefits, which I'll, I'll talk about, 
to address your question, spiritual benefits, which we've been alluding to, physical benefits. We can talk about how this can help you physically. But in terms of psychological benefits, just several things right off the bat. One is very practical. And, and I have done this. I've worked in, in, in my dreams in this capacity. Is let's say, for instance, you are having a, an issue with um, significant other or spouse or whatever, which basically everybody has. You know, you go you go to see your therapist, um, and you, you know you work you work out the issue with your therapist with this other person. What's very interesting here is that you know the the physical person, the other person that you're having a problem with, does not need to be there for you to resolve the issue with your therapist, right? Because the physical body is hardly ever the problem unless somebody like rolls on top of you and <laughs> kills you or something. The physical body is not the problem. It's the relationship to the body, so to speak. It's it's the the experience of that person that's the issue. And so the reason I say this is that um, you can work in in your dreams and therapeutic capacity because the person that you're having a problem with doesn't have to be there in your dreams, just like in a therapist's office. They only have to be there phenomenally. They only have to appear to you in your mind. Because the issue, again, just like the previous thing, the issue is, is the relationship to the display. The issue is not the physical person. The issue is your relationship to it. And so you can, in fact, work out relationship issues in your dreams. I would argue fundamentally that that's all that exists. The only thing that really exists is relationship. Um, and so when you're working with your dreams, and I've done this quite frequently, you're in a lucid dream. You make the aspiration in advance. You incubate the dream. You seed it. You know, very practically, tonight I'm going to have a lucid dream, first order um, kind of intention, so that I can work out this issue with X or whatever it is. And so you wake up in the dream and you go, okay, what was I going to do tonight? Oh, yeah, I was going to try to work out this relationship with X. So then either through role play or whatever, bring the person up and, and you can work with these issues. And I, I speak with personal experience on this. I've done this repeatedly. You can also work with grief, um, because while death is, again, it may be the end of a physical presentation, it's not the end of a relationship. And so you can work, um, you can work out issues in relationship to grief. And again, very practical. I, I had some unresolved issues with friends when they passed. Um, you know, regretful that I didn't have the opportunity to express some things and the like. And so I had a, a, a very powerful lucid dream with one of my parents, was able, in fact, to address this in this kind of role-playing capacity. And this, of course, begs the larger question that we can go to if you want. Is, in fact, this person somehow appearing in your dreams as an external agent, or is it, in fact, uh, you know, an expression of your own mind taking on this form. On one level, Jacob, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so it's the relationship to that display that matters. And so you can use this, uh, again, just to give you, again, a slightly larger scope. You can use lucid dreaming um, to rehearse things. To um, I'm a pianist, and I have literally um, engaged in, in, in very powerful lucid dreams and rehearsing entire Beethoven sonatas literally playing a Beethoven sonata in my dream. And I'll, I'll toss this in and then take a little break. The reason these effects take place in terms of like the performance end of it 
um, is really through the tenets of uh, what I'm sure you're, you and your, many of your listeners know about, the tenets of neuroplasticity, right? That what you do with your mind affects your, your brain. And so many studies have shown this, for instance, that if you are looking at a logical, your left hemisphere is active, just as if you were doing it in waking life. If I'm playing the piano in my dream, my right hemisphere is activated just as if I was doing it in life. The, the brain has an extremely hard time differentiating from what's real, what's imagined, or what's dreamt. And so that alone is, is a staggering proclamation. So what you do with your dreams is virtually neurologically equivalent to doing that activity in the waking state. And then finally, the same thing applies kind of downloading it even further into your very body. What you do in your dream, a mind not only affects brain, it also affects body. And there's some very interesting studies coming out about using your dreams to rehearse physical activity, um, practice your golf swing, swing, practice whatever, anything you can do in the waking state you can do in your dreams. And so that alone is, I mean, holy moly, Batman. I mean, just wrap your mind around that. Engaging in these practices, I, I playfully refer to it now, as like entering a form of night school where you can add um, literally a month, a year. You know, we, speak, we spend about 25% of our time in REM sleep. That's mostly when we dream. That adds up to about a month, a year. Think about how much you could learn if you turned on the inner nightlight and went to night school. Um, and so to me, this is a, a very profound psychological benefit to doing these practices, physical benefits. And then obviously you have the whole even larger embrace of what we started with, which are these spiritual benefits. So I, I actually put forth, Jacob, that lucid dreaming, when the induction methods are, are refined, really could represent the pedagogy of the future. And in fact, just to give you some Kind of scientific traction with this one, Matthew Walker, who's a neuroscientist, wrote a very popular, extremely good book last year called Why We Sleep. And in this book, he devotes just a few pages to lucid dreaming. But this is a hardcore, hard-hitting scientist. And what he says, it's so compelling, I memorized it. He says, it is entirely possible that lucid dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution. And I can talk a little bit more about that because there are actually neurological correlates to this outrageous assertion that most of the parts of the brain that come back online when you're in a lucid dream, these kind of metacognitive aspects of the brain, are actually the parts of the brain that have most recently evolved in human evolution. Literally, the frontal aspects of that are, you know, kind of metaphorically on the frontal edge of human evolution, literally here. Um, are the parts that are activated, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the orbitofrontal cortex, and the pecunius. These are what come back online when you're lucid dreaming. And these are the most recently um, kind of added aspects of the brain, which is why, um, you know, an ape doesn't have these, which is why their heads slope back. Mm. These aspects are what separate us from apes, which is why when you look up, you're looking into the frontal edge of, of literally brain evolution, literal um, aspects of the brain that come back online in the lucid dream. That to me is really interesting. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, and fasc it's fascinating because it, you know, not only does it point to the fact that, you know, our brains already uh, contain sort of the seeds of the possibility of so many altered states of consciousness and, and, and as a result, altered, altered states of, of, you know, life and behavior, but also it points to 
the fact that even that, even the existing structure of the brain is only one possibility. And, you know, with the right tools, you know, uh, with the help of neuroplasticity, as you've been mentioning, we can actually, I mean, this, the, the possibilities are seemingly endless um, because evolution uh, in that sense is open-ended in a certain kind of way. Um, so it's, it is super fascinating. I think so. Yeah. Totally. Um, so I have a question, actually, before I want to I want us to get to the practicals. I'm sure people are like, I want a lucid dream. Give me some tools to do that. Yeah. Uh, but um, one of the things I wanted to ask, just because, you know, from my own personal experience to give a little a bit away about my own uh, psychological struggle without um, psychoanalyzing me, <laughs> I've had through periods of my life where I've got, had a lot of nightmares. And yeah. um, and so in the event that someone is suffering from a lot of nightmares and actually their first instinct is to kind of get out you know i remember i can i can really remember very viscerally many times where the and the and the nightmare is so intense that I, I i wake myself up and then i have to hold my eyes open for you know maybe 30 seconds to a minute in order not to slip back into the nightmare um right. so what but actually that might even be a point where it's i have the power to lucid dream right I, it's, it's like i've given given an opportunity because i'm i'm sort of in that in the in in sort of the in between state or uh what have you so you know in the event that someone actually doesn't want to lucid dream in a place that's totally terrifying you know what is the what is the what are the tools available to kind of navigate that yeah really great question um as usual so yeah, the nightmare thing is a, is a really good one. So several things here, my friend. One is that um, the phenomenology of the nightmare is twofold. One in a more um, conventional relative way and another more absolute way. I want to ping on both of these because nightmares are huge. On a more relative way, very practical, um, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to argue that the large part of nightmares, um, and, I, and I say this with some qualification because it's very easy to dismiss, to dismiss the complexity of the whole nightmare scenario and things like PTSD and trauma, but generally over-the-counter nightmares, I think one could argue, are largely brought about by um, disenfranchised, rejected, refused aspects of experience thrown um, out of sight, so to speak. Um, but in psychological and spiritual um, kind of arenas, out of sight does not mean out of mind. Out of sight means into the unconscious mind. You're throwing it into darkness. And, and this is a very interesting kind of riff on this unfair relationship we have to darkness. You know, darkness is fundamentally neutral, outside and inside. We're the ones that turn it into a, a frightening refuse heap because that's where we toss our refused experience. And so, what happens is out of sight into the unconscious mind where we have all this rejected unwanted experience all these kind of spiders and snakes as i refer to them and so what happens in a in a nightmare is these rejected experiences are, are in a certain sense coming back you know it's like throwing a boomerang they're coming back um i don't think too anthrop anthropomorphically here asking for reintegration for individuation for wholeness and so what what usually happens here is that with a non-lucid relationship to dreams, even doctrinally, I mean, even at the level of the map, let alone the experience, we have a nightmare and our usual response is to run away from the nightmare. Yeah. Well, if you keep running away from the nightmare, you're just running away from yourself. You're just running away from refused aspects of your experience. And guess what? They will keep chasing you. Why? Because they're they're calling out for healing, for holing, for integration. And this is what keeps the nightmare alive. So with a sense of lucidity 
and the power that is conferred with that lucidity, you can wake up. In fact, think about your when you wake up from a nightmare. That's actually a moment of lucidity. Something clues you into the fact in the nightmare, and you go, holy, pardon my French, holy shit, this is just a dream. This is a bad dream. And usually what happens is, because you're not armed with this, this, these teachings, you wake yourself up out of the dream. Um, well, you know, that'll temporarily get you out of trouble, but, you know, that stuff is still down there. With Armed with these practices, and this is so practical, you can hold your seat. You can stop in the dream, and I can give you countless examples in my own experience of this, and do the opposite of what you would normally do. You stop, you're in the dream, you're going, hey, wait a second, wait a second. This is just a dream. You know, this doesn't have any ability to harm me unless I confer this ability onto it. And so then what you do is you stop, you turn around. This is classic, if you know the jargon, classic shamatha and vipassana. Stop and look. You turn around, you look directly at the demon, and you do the opposite of what you would do. You open your heart to it. You embrace it. I have done this so many times. I have not had a nightmare in 20 years. Um, and so what actually happens is the nightmarish figure will do one of two things. It will either disappear altogether or, what's even more powerful, it will dissolve and melt into your very dream heart. And in so doing, what are you doing? You're embracing, integrating, healing, holding these rejected aspects of your experience. And this alone is enormous. In fact, I can refer you to colleagues. There's a, a, um, people now that are doing active lucid dream nightmare therapy, working with this in a very powerful way. Um, and so this is the monumental aspect of, of classic lucid dreaming. But very briefly, the, the other deeper aspect of nightmare is nightmare principle altogether. So now we're talking literal nightmares. Now let's talk about nightmare principle. Um, and this is what I do with, with all my work in terms of lucid dreaming altogether. Lucidity itself is just a code word. It's twilight language for awareness. A lucid dream is an aware dream. And if there's one fundamental curative agent, um, I would argue for all psychospiritual pathology, um, it is awareness. Awareness cures. And so um, what we can do here with a nightmare principle is realize, just as I suggested earlier, nightmare principle is based on reification. And so a deeper aspect of working with nightmares is, in fact, de-reifying the content of the dream itself. That's what it is, this imputed ontological status to the dream that gives it its power. So if you realize, as they say in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, emptiness cannot harm emptiness. The illusory dreamlike nature of the phenomenal world cannot hurt you unless you imbue it with a power it does not inherently have. By working with nightmare principle, in fact, Jacob, this is the fourth stage of classic dream yoga practice. I mean, catch this. Instead of you know, working and running away from, from nightmarish situations, in the fourth stage of classic dream yoga practice, you actually bring about frightful situations in your dream state. You literally can bring about nightmarish situations voluntarily in the lucid dream state as a way to work with fear. Um, and so this is a way to cut to the very heart of the samsaric agenda altogether a nightmare principle altogether, which is seeing this world in this bloody, solid way. That's what it means to be asleep. That's the nightmare of samsara. That's what the Buddha wake up, woke up from. And this is what this practice leads you to. So 
We use obstacles to trans, you know, transform them into opportunities. We use the obstacle of the nightmare as a way, again, the double delusion, to point out the nightmarish presentation of the entire phenomenal world. Um, and so you wake up from the nighttime nightmare, and then you look at this world in a completely different way and say, you know, the only reason I'm so afraid of X is because I've imbued it with a reifying status it does not inherently have. So let me take exactly the same insight I had last night when I saw through this monster and realized that this monster of a boss, this monster situation, does not have the power to affect me unless I give it that power. And again, this dovetails back to this idea of absolute cities. Where I was going fundamentally is that we can use, we can transform obstacle into opportunity. We can transform the obstacle of, of the nighttime dream as an opportunity to discover the, the nature of not only dream, but the waking state. And so using the tenets of nightmare principle, which nightmare principle is based on reification, and that's, I mean, if there's original sin in the wisdom traditions, in my opinion, it's a reification. Taking things to be so bloody solid and real. Again, just like what defines a non-lucid dream. And so if we can cut through the appearances, see their illusory nature, see what they really are, then we live a freer, lighter, more awakened existence altogether because we're no longer so endarkened. We're no longer so burdened by the contents of mind, the contents of reality. We develop, you know, what the, um, the superior man or wo a woman in the Taoist tradition, Superman, Superwoman, the ability to develop this X-ray vision of perspective and lucidity that allows you to see through the phenomenal display. It's still there. Again, it's still there. Your relationship has changed dramatically. Um, and that's no small thing. All right. So now I want to talk a little bit about what we've been alluding to, which are some of the, and you're already beginning to talk about it, but um, just some kind of general principles or perhaps strategies to begin a practice of, you know, lucid dreaming and, and leveraging lucid dreaming uh, uh, toward all these benefits that we're talking about. Um, so how does one, you know, uh, cultivate an intention to lucidly dream? Yeah, so there are a host of things here. Um, in many ways, what you said was just is like the, the essence of it all is the intentionality and and what I always recommend is, first of all, doing exactly what we're doing here, is just riffing on the topic, learning about the benefits, the why, why bother, why should I, yeah. you know, enter this institute of higher learning, so to speak, um, learning about the benefits. Why, why is this so bloody important? Well, perhaps some of the conversation today can give you a sense of that. So we create what's in the Buddhist tradition is referred to as the power of right view, outlook. You know, hey, wow, this is this is really kind of cool. I had no idea. I'm kind of sold. Okay, now what? Well, host of, of, of practices. I will give you the most um, foundational ones in my opinion. Um, and really, one of the most important, Jacob, is the one you just said, uh, intentionality. Um, the intention actually to become lucid in the dream state. And in fact, this is of such importance that some dream yoga teachers, when they speak about induction methods, that's all they present. They talk about 
um, instilling the extraordinary power of intention. Intention etymologically literally means to stretch forward, to stretch towards. And so by setting the proper intention, literally as, as simple as saying with, with heartfelt, heartfelt conviction throughout the day, you know, I really want to have a lucid dream, almost like a mantra. I, re I really want to wake up in my dreams. I really want to become lucid in my dreams. And so we do this throughout the day. And again, for the scientifically oriented people, using the tenets of what are referred to as um, uh, bidirectionality, you know, what you do during the day obviously affects what you do at night. And we've been talking a little bit about the other direction. What you do at night also can affect what you experience during the day. But for now, it's the day to night trajectory. So. I want to have a lucid dream, especially when you're going to sleep at night. You want to kind of perfume the night because uh, in Buddhist approaches to the mind, it's very interesting. Sleep and dream are considered variable mental factors, which means they're fundamentally neutral. They're like tofu. So what we want to do is we want to marinate the sleeping, dreaming mind in the marination of these induction methods. So we go to sleep, we're lying down in bed. Tonight, you know what? I'm going to have a lucid dream tonight. Um, intentionality in itself cannot be overstated. Uh, don't let the simplicity below, belie the efficacy. It really works. The other main one, and this is a really contribution from the dream yoga tradition, is the extraordinary power of meditation. Um, and so let me say just a little bit about this. This is a big one because... Um, in fact, it's so much so I refer to it as a foundational or even a super technique that what meditation allows one to do is, in fact, become lucid to the contents of mind during the day. And so many studies have actually shown lucid uh, meditators have more lucid dreams. And as incredulous as it may seem, in the mind of a meditation master, all their dreams are lucid. And it makes total sense because Kabir once said of death also applies to dream. What is found now is found then. Or conversely, what is not found now is not found then. And so by this, what I mean is that if you take a close look at your mind, um, an honest one, it's sometimes painfully revelatory that the vast majority of what takes place in, in the untamed, untrained, non-meditative mind takes place utterly non-lucidly. We have this constant stream of thoughts, depending on where you get the data, anywhere from 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day, the vast majority of which stream by completely unawares, you know, completely non-lucidly. So we have non-lucid dreams at night because we have a non-lucid relationship to the contents of our mind during the day. So let's work with this. And this is worth throwing into the mix. When you talk about lucid dreams and non-lucid dreams, a non-lucid dream is a, a distracted dream, a forgotten dream. A lucid dream is a mindful dream, a remembered dream, a non-distracted dream. This is worth throwing into the mix because you can practice mindfulness. You can practice forgetful memory. You can practice um, presence and, and or non-distraction. And so by working in meditation, what in fact are you doing? you're becoming more lucid to aware of the contents of your mind. You're becoming lucid. 
And so again, when that display is then released, free of sensory constraint in the dreaming state, that's what we label the term dream. Guess what happens? You now have a more lucid relationship to the contents of your nighttime mind. And I can attest to this mindful conversation um, in my three-year retreat, you know, where I'm, I'm engaging in mindfulness practices 16 hours a day. You, it, it's no great stretch. You start to have lucid dreams every single night because you're just working with lucidity during the day. So maybe I'll stop with those because, you know, from there, then you get all the very specific techniques, the mnemonic induction of lucid dreams, um, you know, the wake and back to bed method, the supplemental uses of things like galantamine, the, all the gadgetry that's coming out there, all these techniques, you know, east and west, when they're brought together, are extraordinarily effective in bringing about um, these you know, special dreams. And so meditation, intentionality, increasing dream recall, very and the natural consequence of these practices is indeed lucidity. So um, on one level, it's very straightforward. You know, if you understand the phenomenology of what brings about lucidity and non-lucidity, realize that you're always, whether you know it or not, you're always practicing, you're always meditating, so we're always becoming either familiar or um, more familiar with lucid or non-lucid states. Why not become more familiar with lucidity? And then meditation that brings that about, other practices like illusory form that also cultivate that, a natural consequence of these practices is in fact lucidity at night. So I think that's enough to get some of your people going. Yeah, that's a, excellent. So um, a follow-up question then is, are there any things that are, are good to avoid perhaps before, you know, in a certain period before going to sleep, because it might support that. Like I'm thinking, for example, you know, watching five hours of television or, you know, drinking too much wine or, you know, something, these things that perhaps are going to kind of cause a lot of maybe neurological noise, as it were, um, and could potentially inhibit that process of, even if you set up the intentionality for it. Are there some best practices? Absolutely. Yeah. This is where, um, spiritual, or I should say spiritual, this is where good sleep hygiene comes into play, um, you know, both East and West, both psychological and spiritual, but very practically, the classic uh, sleep hygiene techniques are, um, like you mentioned, avoiding especially blue light, um, at least 90 minutes before you go to sleep, preferably like three hours before you go to sleep. It's very interesting, when it gets dark, Darkness imposes a kind of natural curfew of the mind, right? This invitation to turn in. So if we violate this curfew, which is what we do with artificial light, and, and this is a very interesting topic to talk about the, the, the extraordinarily damaging effects of light pollution and artificial light, um, literally and metaphorically, and how I would argue it's one of the principal signatures of the Kali Yuga, the dark age is defined by runaway light. It's a painful irony. And so 90 minutes before you go to sleep, you stay away from uh, light, especially blue light, tablets, iPhones, and the like, because these lights inhibit the release of melatonin, sometimes called the Dracula hormone, right? Only comes out at night. So you want to create a kind of red light district or basically get away from light altogether. Um, exercise is okay, but not too late because that'll keep you up. Um, you want to do that earlier in the day. 
caffeine has a very long half-life of about anywhere from five to seven hours, which means if you drink a cup of coffee at noon, 50% of it's still in your system five, uh, at five or seven o'clock. So, you know, certain people obviously can metabolize it more readily, but you stay away from that. Um, try to settle the mind through contemplative practice or meditation. I mean, because I'm a fanatic about this stuff, I meditate every single night before I go to bed as a way to kind of unwind. And uh, there's all kinds of subtle um, spiritual purification practices you can do, prana purification practices that are, that are helping to kind of um, unwind the mind. Um, I mean, really, in a nutshell, those are the principal ones. There's a host of others, but those are the ones that really are the most effective and easy to implement. You know, and fundamentally, really, Jacob, what it is, is it's about establishing a more honored and treasured relationship to the dreaming state. Um, and if we start to do that, that, in, in fact, is itself an expression of our intentionality. We're starting to treasure the dream. And if we treasure it, we honor it, we respect it, we create these atmospheric conditions then, you know, conjoined with the more overt practices that I mentioned earlier, you're creating this kind of atmosphere of lucidity. The, the analogy I use is like, I remember when I was a kid, I went to the Smithsonian um, Museum and, and they, you know, in, in this kind of artificial environment, they were able to create a bolt of lightning. And I found that really compelling retrospectively, because when you think about a flash of lightning, i.e. flash of lucidity, it's brought about by environmental conditions, the right atmosphere, the right temperature, the, the right electrical potential. It's a systemic, quite a holistic approach. And I emphasize this because if you really want to achieve lucidity with regularity, with constancy, you have to work in this kind of ecological way, which is the way the phenomenal world you know, arises. It doesn't arise based on one condition. It arises on a vast nexus of causes and conditions. And if we work and engage in these causes and conditions, which, which I, I'm riffing on and writing about now, then lucidity, uh, you know, no, no magic here. This is pure causality, pure physics. Lucidity is a natural consequence of this kind of nexus of causes and conditions. And so your questions are good. You know, we work with interiority, with intentionality. We work with meditation. Diet can help. Um, um, all these other things can actually co-conspire to bring about the lucid state. So um, something like that. Those are, yeah, those are excellent practical tools. All right, so we are nearing the end of our conversation. This has been absolutely fantastic. Honestly, it's one of the most fascinating conversations I think I've had in a while in the podcast. Hope no one I recently interviewed is listening. <laughs> um, so one, I just want to end on something that, of course, We'll dovetail with um, one of our uh, uh, recent collaborations, You and Embodied Philosophy, because you're contributing a talk to our virtual reality conference, um, which is um, exploring the intersection of virtual reality, contemplative practice, and Eastern traditions, and also sort of some therapeutic paradigms, therapeutic uh, uses of, of VR. Um, and this is, a, of course, a conference that's going to be hosted in February um, at Embodied Philosophy, and I'll say a little bit more about that at the end. Um, but, uh, you recently, you're giving a talk for that conference. So, um, those listening can get a little more of you for that conference, which is happening in February. Um, but you also recently, um, released an article that you co-published with, uh, Jordan Quaglia called lucid virtual dreaming antecedents and consequence of virtual lucidity during virtual threat. Um, so I wanted to just give you an opportunity as a way of, I don't know, previewing some of the topics that you're going to explore at the conference, um, a little bit about this and sort of what you've discovered in this research. 
Yeah. Well, the study, you know, people can read the study uh, that I did with Dr. Qualia, the cognitive scientist. What we did in this in this paper, as the title suggests, is work with a concept called virtual lucidity, which is again highly analogous to lucidity in the lucid dream. Um, and so, in the paper itself, we we created a, a we used an app, a virtual app, that that brought about a, a, quite a frightful situation. Walking out on this plank, um, hundreds of you know floors above the ground, and um, using some practices from dream yoga, um, i.e. a loose reform practice, we were able to um, allow people to still have a very heightened, enjoyable experience of virtual reality, but using some of these contemplative practices completely in line with what we were talking about, we um, uh, kind of stripped the fearful aspects of the experience away um, by allowing them to gain, in fact, this type of perspective, um, this kind of lucid perspective to the virtual reality display altogether. And so what I will be talking about in my presentation um, is using virtual reality, which I think is in a very exciting space or stage, um, depending on how it's harnessed, virtual reality, I believe, has tremendous um, applications and implications for psychospiritual growth. But what I will be talking about, and I can just introduce a little bit now, is highly resonant what we've been talking about um, with lucid dreams, is we can use virtual reality as a way to, in fact, explore the nature of mind and reality. And um, I, I do this in a lot of ways with my riffing these days about um, working with virtual reality allows us to discover both the lucidity and non-lucidity principles. In other words, what I do with virtual reality is um, talk about, well, what is it in the virtual reality setup that makes it so real, just like in a, in a non-lucid dream? Why, in fact, do we get sucked in or what some scientists talk about um, as a swept up continuum? What is it about the VR setup that sucks us in, um, makes the display seem so bloody real, and therefore we append this label reality to this virtual experience? And so similar to what I mentioned earlier, Jacob, what I do is use the virtual reality display similarly to the double delusion as a way to work with this display. And in fact, come to this quite unsettling conclusion, which a lot of people really don't want to hear for very deep psychological reasons, because it begets the empty nature of reality, is that by using virtual reality, we can come, uh, it can lead us to the conclusion that this is virtual. Um, this is as real, in fact, as that display. And so it's a wonderful way, a, a fantastic medium to explore principles of mind and reality, just like in the non-lucid dream. And I have to say, when I first did my, my very first VR experience, it was the closest thing I've ever experienced to a lucid dream. When I first put it on, the goggles on, I said, oh my gosh, this is just like a lucid dream. And so I got into it immediately. I did the study with Jordan. And uh, as I'll talk about when I do my presentation, there's a lot of, I think, really compelling directions where you can explore the nature of mind and reality using this particular medium. So I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about it, actually. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, you know, just like you said, it sounds extremely analogous. And do you think that actually as, you know, for those that maybe theoretically would have, would find it challenging to enter into lucid state, even with all of the tools that actually, as a result of maybe doing 
um, a bit of this virtual reality work, it could also translate into a, an increased ability to lucidly dream. Absolutely, uh, it greases the skids for sure. The work of Jane Dockenbach, you know, she she originally started doing work with gamers, people who spend a lot of time doing video games, have actually been shown to have a higher incidence of lucid dreams because, in a certain way, you know, they're working with an alternate reality in the video arena. And again, what is found now is found then, so it greases the skids. And in a very similar way, and this eventually, you know, it's expensive. We've been talking. In fact, I parenthetically have to toss into the mix. We are, I've, I've co-created with some producers in LA um, as a kind of an advisor, a, a kind of a Bardo virtual reality program where we've created this program using virtual reality to help people prepare for the after-death state using principles of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, but the idea here, for sure, and this has been my experience as well, that, that, that by spending more time in an alternate reality like VR, um, it can definitely grease the skids for lucidity at night. And, and I'm pretty psyched about this sort of thing because this is a great contribution of the West, is you know the, this very marvelous set of technology, skill sets, and, and the science behind um, mind and brain, where we can take advantage of these really, really clever Western ways to, um, in this case, bring about lucid states of consciousness. And so for sure, the virtual reality medium, I think if it's harnessed properly and there are specific programs designed for lucid dreaming, I have no doubt whatsoever that it will be harnessed very successfully to help people have lucid dreams at night. It makes total sense to me. And the preliminary data from Jane Dr. Bach um, tends to support this sort of thing. So for those of you who are interested, you can look at her work. Um, and it, it's amazing what you know you can get from Dr. Google these days, but there's already a fair amount of data out supporting this sort of thing. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. It's fascinating, and I, and I appreciate you mentioning if it's harnessed in the right way, because of course I think most people, when they think uh, initially of VR, they think you know escapism or fantasy or you know and it being leveraged as pure entertainment. And so there's a lot of there's a bad rap, I think, in a certain sense around VR. And so that's why I think it's really fascinating and wonderful that there's work like this being done. And, and it's so important that yeah, it gets yeah. out there so people can actually really understand and start to grapple with the, the profound therapeutic and transformative benefits that these technologies can you know, help to cultivate. Yeah, and actually, I have to throw into that mix, you know, very much like a lucid or non-lucid dream, if, if you don't become lucid in your dreams, then it becomes um, not a medium for waking up. It actually becomes super samsara. That's why it's called the double delusion. It's just delusion on top of delusion. But in a classic kind of tantric or alchemical way, you can transform that lead into gold if you have these mediums. And exactly the same thing, Jacob, happens with, with virtual reality. If it's not related to properly, it too becomes super samsara. And so what I, and this is why I think we're at a pivotal point, and I'm so glad to see this kind of symposium conference that you're doing. The analogy I use is that VR is like a stem cell. It's, it's a stem cell technology. And depending on the environment that that stem cell is put in, it will either grow into a cancer or a tumor, and it, no, no surprise, one of the hottest selling aspects of virtual reality is pornography right now. I mean, that's super samsara. Yeah. But if you take that same stem cell, and you put it in this environment. You put it in an environment of skillful means. And, and I have to say, I, I, I took a very high-ranking Tibetan Lama into the VR lab 
And uh, we put him in the VR goggles and, and he got into it in a big way. He was in this headset for like over an hour. And the minute he took the headset off, he's, he proclaimed without any uh, provocation, invocation on my part, exactly what I was hoping. He said, this technology has amazing potential for meditation, for dream yoga, for bardo yoga, for what's called generation stage or visualization practices. And so he riffed for about 10 minutes on exactly what I was thinking, that if this amazing technology as a stem cell is put in the proper environment, that cell will grow into technologies for awakening. And that is the aspiration, I think, of what you're doing with your conference. I could not applaud and support that more because um, you know Deepak Chopra allegedly, when he took the VR headset off the first, for the first time, said, this will change the world. It has that kind of potential because it's a way to really look at the nature of mind and reality. So I'm super psyched about what you guys are doing and glad to be part of it. Amazing. Well, Andrew, this has been fantastic. And uh, as we close, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about the things that you're doing for people that want to um, um, study with you more. I know you have uh, a fantastic offering called Night Club, which I just think is an, an amazing pun. <laughs> It's really awesome. That's definitely the nightclub that I want to go to. And actually, I think I will because this conversation has inspired me so much. It just sounds like a fabulous offering. So tell us about nightclub. Tell us about some other things that you're doing. Thanks. Thanks, Jacob. That's very kind. Uh, the propaganda part. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty psyched on all this. As you can probably tell, my passion gets the better of me. Um, I, I write and riff on this stuff. I have two books coming out this year, um, a really deep dive, um, philosophical dive um, called Dreams of Light, you mentioned earlier. I also have a, a more entry-level introductory book, Lucid Dreaming Workbook, coming out, The Art of Lucid Dreaming Workbook. Um, so two books coming out this year. And then, as you so kindly um, mentioned, uh, we launched a site last year that we playfully call Nightclub because I teach this stuff all over the world. And everywhere I go, people always say, okay, this is like really cool, but like now what? Where can I go? What can I do? And for 20 years, I kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. And so finally, last year with some really gifted people, we've created this kind of virtual university, virtual monastery, whatever you want to call it, called Night Club. And we do very similar to what you're doing here. I interview some pretty amazing people. That's the really selfish part for me. I get to talk to some the greatest minds in the world in this business, including Stella Berge, Evan Thompson, Ken Wilber, and the like. And then, and then we have a community where we share dreams, a dream sharing platform. I offer webinars twice a month. And we also have in the back of the nightclub, we have playfully what I call night school. Night school is six tracks of, of approach. Um, the science and medicine of sleep, the daytime practices, lucid dreaming, which is the platform practice, and then the cascade of nocturnal meditations, uh, dream yoga, sleep yoga, barley bar yoga. And so we have these six kind of lines of, of inquiry and study. And it's growing beautifully. It's a really fun thing to do. That also lists all the teaching stuff that I do. You know, I'm doing more and more of the stuff. So I'm teaching these programs around the world. I'm teaching a lot now also about using these um, practices as ways to prepare for the end of life because dream yoga, parenthetically, in the Tibetan tradition, came about principally as a way to prepare for death. So these nocturnal practices have tremendous applicability towards dying. Um, Thanatos and Hypnos, the god of sleep and the god of, of death, they're not just brothers, they're twins in Greek mythology. So they're deep connection. And so I riff on all this stuff. Um, 
and uh, I enjoy it the heck out of it. Um, I, I love doing everything that I'm doing and hanging out with people like you makes it even more fruitful. So people can learn about that. AndrewHolichick.com, you know, it's pretty easy to kind of um, find out what I do and that sort of thing. So thank you for that opportunity. Absolutely. That's very kind. So yeah, check out AndrewHolichick.com. And, you know, uh, the, the de- question of death is something that I had um, had sort of in the possibility of questions, but I think we're going to have to um, save it for a second interview because it's such a big topic and I think it is an incredibly important one and one that I definitely want to talk more about on the podcast. So we'll, we'll have you back to discuss uh, all of the stuff we uh, have talked about in relation to uh, the process of dying. So thank you so much oh, for your time. Fun. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, Jacob. Thanks for the great questions. Really enjoyable and very much look forward to the VR event. So all the best to you, my friend. Take care.